0: This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's Community Access Media Organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello, thanks for joining the programme today and welcome. If you've been with us before, I hope you had a wonderful time since we last met. And if this is the first time with the programme, you're very welcome and I pray you'll get some benefit out of it. We're examining a text popular for study and practice in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition titled Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun by the Master Namka Pal. This is a commentary on another text called The Seven Points of Mind Training which often deals in slogans to convey its instructions. We've come across some of these already like Integrate all teachings into one. Primary importance should be given to the two witnesses. And the instruction we looked at in last week's program Constantly cultivate only a joyful mind. To this, Namkarpel says, having experienced the flavor of the teaching through meditation, whatever adverse conditions such as suffering and ill repute may arise, if your meditation is unaffected by such discouraging conditions and you only generate happiness and rejoicing, thinking the practice of mind training through giving and taking has been meaningful, then the counteracting forces have been initially effective. Now, although Nam Kapel specifically talks about the practice of taking on suffering and giving away one's happiness, known as Tonglen, you will remember, if you were with us last time, that we had a look at Thich Nhat Hanh's five points to maintain a joyful mind. That was letting go, cultivating positive seeds, joyful man- mindfulness, concentration and insight. The essence of our practice can be described as transforming suffering into happiness, Thich Nhat Hanh concluded. It's not a complicated practice, but it requires us to cultivate mindfulness, concentration, and insight. It requires, first of all, that we come home to ourselves, that we make peace with our suffering, treating it tenderly and looking deeply at the roots of our pain. It requires that we let go of useless, unnecessary sufferings and take a closer look at our idea of happiness. Finally, it requires that we nourish happiness daily with acknowledgement, understanding and compassion for ourselves and for those around us. We offer these practices to ourselves, to our loved ones and to the larger community. This is the art of suffering and the art of happiness. With each breath we ease suffering and generate joy. With each step the flower of inside blooms. I always find Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching so applicable and beautiful. But now, before we continue our mind training discussion, let's think about motivation as we usually do. The vaster the motivation, the greater the positive potential we develop on our mental continuum. The vastest motivation includes the well-being, both temporary and ultimate, of all beings, not just oneself. So, to get the most out of this program, let's set a motivation to benefit all beings, even if there's only two of us, you and me, participating in the discussion. This program may just be a cause for you, me or both of us to become enlightened as a Buddha and then, even if it's not much benefit now, it will be an indirect cause for all our disciples to also become enlightened and then they're all their disciples and so on. So even if there's just two of us or even one on the program today, it may become a seed. That benefits countless beings. Let's hope so, as we set just that motivation. May this half hour program become the cause for me to become enlightened, and through me, infinite numbers of other beings as well. Remember, however, that when we say me, we don't mean some intrinsically existing independent me, but a me that is empty of such a way of being, and only a dependent arising coming from causes, conditions, parts and the mind that labels me. This me is essentially not independent from everything else that exists and is so not essentially separate. Thinking like this will help to dispel the thought that I am something special when I make the aspiration to lead countless others to enlightenment. So, with this in mind, let's think about our motivation. Thank you. Now, continuing with the mind training text and the slogan, constantly cultivate a joyful mind, in amongst the teachings of Chogram Trumpa is a book titled, Training the Mind and Cultivating Loving Kindness, which is precisely on the mind training slogans. When he comes to this particular slogan, which he parses as, Always maintain only a joyful mind, he writes, The point of this slogan is continuously to maintain joyful satisfaction. That means that every mishap is good because it is encouragement for you to practice the Dharma. Other people's mishaps are good also. You should share them and bring them into yourself as the continuity of their practice or discipline. So you should include that also. It's very nice to feel that way actually. For myself, there is a sense of actual joy. You feel so good and so high. I suppose I was converted into Buddhism Although I was not sticking bumper stickers on my car saying, Jesus saved me, I was doing that mentally. Mentally, I was putting bumper stickers saying, I'm glad that my ego has been converted into Buddhism and that I've been accepted and realized as a Buddhist citizen, a compassionate person. I used to feel extraordinarily good and rewarded. Where that came from was no question. I felt so strong and strengthened by the whole thing. In fact, I began to feel that if I didn't have that kind of encouragement in myself, I would have a lot of difficulty studying the Vajrayana. I felt so grateful, so good. So this slogan means to maintain a sense of satisfaction and joyfulness in spite of the little problems and hassles in one's life. This slogan is connected to the previous one. Now that's the one that is translated in the Namkarpel text as primary importance should be given to the two witnesses but which according to chogun trumpa is of the two witnesses hold the principal one chogun trumpet continues if you've been raised in the judeo-christian tradition of discipline the idea of watching yourself is based purely on guilt but in this case it is not that way we do not have any logic that acknowledges understands or presents a concept like original sin from our point of view you're not basically condemned your naughtiness is not necessarily regarded as your problem, although it is witnessed, obviously. You are not fundamentally condemned. Your temporary naughtinesses are regarded as coming from temporary problems only. Therefore, to follow up on that, the slogan says, Always maintain a joyful mind. It is a joyful mind because you do not have to be startled by any situation of wretchedness or, for that matter, sudden upliftedness. Instead, you can maintain a sense of cheerfulness all along. To start with, you maintain a sense of cheerfulness because you are on the path. You are actually doing something about yourself. While most sentient beings have no idea what should be done with themselves, at least you have some lead on it, which is fantastic. If you step out into Brooklyn or the black hole of Calcutta, you will realize that what we are trying to do with ourselves is incredible. Generally, nobody has the first idea about anything like this at all. It's incredible, fantastic. You should be tremendously excited and feel wonderful that somebody even thought of such an idea. There's a sense of joy from that point of view, a sense of celebration, which you can refer to whenever you feel depressed, whenever you feel that you do not have enough in the environment to cheer you up, or whenever you feel that you do not have the kind of feedback you need in order to practice. The idea is that whether it's a rainy day, a stormy day, a sunny day, a very hot day or a very cold day, whether you're hungry, thirsty, very full or very sick, you can maintain a sense of cheerfulness. I don't think I have to explain that too much. There's a sense of basic cheerfulness that allows you to wake yourself up. That joy seems to be the beginning of compassion. We could say, that this slogan is based on how to go about maintaining your awareness of the practice of Mahayana, literally and fully. You might feel uptight about somebody's terrible job, that his or her particular niceness has been transferred onto you and screwed up the whole environment. But in this case, you don't blame such a person, you blame yourself. And blaming yourself is a delightful thing to do. You begin to take a very cheerful attitude towards the whole thing. So you are transcending OI vei, getting out of Brooklyn, metaphorically speaking. Now you could do that, it is possible to do that. Now for those of you who don't know, OI vei is short for OI is ISMIR, which is Yiddish for woe is me. So Chogyam Trumper is saying that by taking on the suffering and blaming yourself, you are transcending the whole woe is me mind and actually generating a happy attitude. Here we can refer back to Nam Karpel's commentary about the practice of Tonglen, taking on suffering and giving out happiness. Basically, this practice acknowledges that all our suffering comes from the self-grasping and self-cherishing mind. Remember the first slogan in the mind training, integrate all practices into one, and that Nam Karpel commented, Since all the Buddha's teachings and the commentaries to them were meant to subdue the misconception of self, And since that is the conception that is to be eradicated or exhausted, we should examine whether the activities of our body, speech and mind favour and encourage the misconception of self or oppose it. And the reason all the Buddha's teachings and commentaries are meant to subdue the misconception of the self is that it is precisely that misconception that is the cause of all our sufferings. So if we continue to grasp onto that misconception of a self as something inherent and independent and cherish it, we will have problems and suffer. Therefore, our happiness comes from understanding that all joy comes from letting go of this misconception and blaming this mirage of self for all our suffering up to now. If we are upset and negatively affected by someone that is nasty and seems to mess up the environment, our suffering comes from grasping and cherishing our sense of I and seeing that other person as separate and as a threat. If instead we could understand that the other person is only acting out of conditioning and their sense of entitled self, we don't need to take their nastiness personally, but keep a mind of loving-kindness towards them even while we might be neutralizing some of their nasty excesses. Any anger or frustration or hate that arises in me and makes me suffer is not their problem, it's mine. I do not need to let these things dictate my reaction to this person, even though they arise. I can just see them as a result of my own self-grasping and self-cherishing, which is my true enemy, and act opposite to the way this enemy is urging me to go, or at least stay neutral. That way, I transform the negative energy while my general attitude stays comparatively happy. This while the conventional I, the one that is only labelled on the collection of psychophysical aggregates and their conditions and causes, frustrates and in a small way neutralises the misconceived inherently and independently existing I, the cause of all mischief and suffering. This is of course not easy. It's much easier to let ourselves go in times of turbulent emotion and act out our self-centred neurotic conditioning. But that, just makes it stronger. Chyogam Trumper says that maintaining our sense of cheerfulness even under very difficult situations takes a lot of courage. But it is, he says, founded in our Buddha nature and the compassion of those beings who have already trodden the spiritual path and attained great realizations. Because these beings were like ourselves and decided to do the work we are trying to do, because they were successful in it, they were able to transcend the samsaric state and attain enlightenment. So, we could do it too, Chogyam Trimpa says. It is founded in a real situation. If someone punches you in the mouth and says, you are terrible, you should be grateful that such a person has actually acknowledged you and said so. You could in fact respond with tremendous dignity by saying, thank you, I appreciate your concern. In that way, His neurosis is taken over by you, taken into you, much as is done in Tonglen practice. There is an immense sacrifice taking place here. If you think this is ridiculously trippy, you are right. In some sense, the whole thing is ridiculously trippy. But if somebody doesn't begin to provide some kind of harmony, we will not be able to develop sanity in this world at all. Somebody has to plant the seed so that sanity can happen on this earth. The great Thich Nhat Hanh talks about how we can deal with our suffering situations with a happy mind in a teaching titled Mara and the Buddha, Embracing Our Suffering, on PlumVillage.org. He says, One day I saw the Venerable Ananda practicing walking meditation in front of the hut of the Buddha. You know, Ananda became a monk, a student of the Buddha. He was the attendant of the Buddha during many years, and he took very good care of the Buddha. Of course the Buddha loved him and there were people who were jealous of him. Sometimes Ananda was so concerned about the happiness of the Buddha that he forgot about himself. Sometimes he did not enjoy what there was in the present moment, being much younger than the Buddha. One day, standing on a hill looking down, the Buddha saw beautiful rice fields. The rice was ripe, about to be harvested. But because Ananda was only thinking of how to make the Buddha comfortable, he didn't see it. So the Buddha pointed to that rice fields below and said, Ananda, can you see it's beautiful? It was like a bell of mindfulness. Suddenly Ananda saw that the rice fields down there were so beautiful. The Buddha smiled and said, Ananda, I want the robes of the monks and nuns to be designed in, for, in the form of rice fields, golden colors like the rice that is already ripe, small portions of the rice fields like that. Ananda said, Yes, that is possible. I will go tell my brothers from now on we will make the Sangati, the robes of the monks and nuns, in the form of rice fields. And that is why you will see the monks and nuns' robes made up of patches of squares. Thich Han continues, Another time when Ananda was with the Buddha north of the Ganga River in the city of Vasili, the Buddha pointed to the city, the trees and the hills and said to Ananda, Don't you see Vaisali is beautiful? Then Ananda took the time to look at the beauty of the city. The day I saw Ananda practicing walking meditation around the hut of the Buddha, he was trying to protect the Buddha from guests. Many guests came and they always wanted to have a cup of tea with the Buddha and the Buddha could not just receive guests all day. So Ananda was trying to help. That day Ananda was practicing walking around the hut of the Buddha. It's not exactly a hut but a cave. The Buddha was staying in a cave, very cold, and Ananda saw someone coming, coming, coming in his direction. He had the impression that he knew this person but just forgot his name. When that person had come very close, he recognized him as Mara. Now you know Mara? Mara is the one who caused the Buddha a lot of difficulties. The night before the Buddha attained final enlightenment, Mara was there to tempt him. Buddha was tempted by Mara. Mara is the tempter. He always wanted the Buddha to be a politician, to be a king or a president or a foreign minister, or running a business, having lots of money, a lot of beautiful women. And he was always trying to tempt the Buddha so the Buddha would go in these directions. That is Mara. Ananda saw Mara approaching. He felt very uncomfortable. Why should Mara come at this time? But Mara saw him already. Nanda could not hide himself, so he had to stand there and wait for Mara, and they had to say things like, Hello, how do you do? Oh, people say that even if they don't like each other. They say, Hello, good morning, how are you? and so on. They don't mean it. Then they come to the real thing. What are you here for, Mara? I want to visit the Buddha, Mara said. I want to see him. And Nanda said, Why should you want to see the Buddha? I don't think the Buddha has time for you. Now you know when the head of a corporation or a director of an office doesn't want to see you, she says, go and tell him I'm in conference. And Ananda was about to say something like that. But he remembered that he had to practice the five precepts and could not tell a lie. So he refrained from saying that the Buddha was in conference. He was frank. He said, Mara, why should the Buddha see you? What is the purpose and are you not ashamed of yourself? Don't you remember that in the old days under the Bodhi tree you were defeated by the Lord. How could you bear to see him again? I don't think he will see you. You are the enemy of the Buddha. And Ananda continued to say what was really in his heart. You know, Mara was very aware, a very experienced person. He just stood there and looked at the young venerable Ananda and smiled. After Ananda finished, he said, What did you say, Ananda? You said the Buddha has an enemy? Then Ananda felt very uncomfortable to say that the Buddha had an enemy. That did not seem to be the right thing to say. But he just said it. He said, I don't think that the Buddha will see you. You are his enemy. So if you are not very concentrated, very deep, very mindful, you may see things like that against yourself, against what you know and what you practice. When Mara heard Ananda say that he is the enemy of the Buddha, he burst out laughing and laughing and laughing and that made Ananda very uncomfortable. What? You're telling me that the Buddha also has enemies? So finally Ananda was defeated, completely defeated. He had to go in and announce the visit of Mara, hoping that the Lord would say, Oh, I have no time for him, I need to continue sitting. But to his surprise, the Buddha smiled beautifully and said, Mara, wonderful, ask him to come in. That surprised Ananda. Remember, Ananda was young with not a lot of experience. All of us are Ananda, you know. So Ananda had to go out again and bow to Mara and ask him to come in, because the Lord wanted Mara to be his guest. The Buddha stood up and guess what? The Buddha did hugging meditation with Mara. Ananda did not understand. The Buddha invited Mara to sit in the best place in the cave, a stone bench. And he turned to his beloved disciple and said, Ananda, please make tea for us. Now you might guess that Ananda was not entirely happy. Making tea for the Buddha, yes, he could do that a thousand times a day. But making tea for Mara was not a very pleasant idea. But since the Lord had asked, Ananda went into a corner and began to make tea for them and tried to look deeply why things were like that. When the tea was offered to the Buddha and the guest, Ananda stood behind the Buddha and tried to be mindful of what the Buddha would need. You see, if you become a novice, you have to practice being an attendant to your teacher. You stand behind him or her and you try to know what your teacher needs each moment. But it did not seem that the Buddha needed anything. He just looked at Mara in a very loving way and said, Dear friend, how have you been? Is everything Okay. Mara said, No, not okay at all. Things go very badly with me. You know something, Buddha? I'm very tired of being Mara. Now I want to be someone else like you. You are kind. Wherever you go, you are welcome. You are bowed to with lotus flowers, and you have many monks and nuns with very lovely faces following you. You are offered bananas and oranges and kiwis and all kinds of fruits. As a Mara, I have to wear the appearance of a Mara, Everywhere I go, I have to speak in a very tricky language. I have to show that I'm really Mara. I have to use many tricks. I have to use the language of Mara. I have to have an army of wicked little Maras. And if I breathe in and breathe out, every time I breathe out, I have to show that smoke is coming from my nose. But I don't mind very much all these things. What I mind most is that my disciples, the little Maras, are beginning to talk about transformation and healing. They're beginning to talk about liberation, Buddhahood. That's one thing I cannot bear. So I've come to propose to you that we exchange roles. You be a Mara and I'll be a Buddha. When the venerable Ananda heard that, he was very scared. His heart was about to stop. What if his teacher accepted the exchange of roles? He would be the attendant of a Mara. So he was hoping that the Buddha would refuse the proposal. Then the Buddha looked at Mara very calmly, smiling to him and asked this question. Mara, do you think it's a lot of fun being a Buddha? People don't understand me. They misunderstand me and put a lot into my mouth that I never said. They've built temples where they put statues of me in copper, in plaster, sometimes in emerald and gold, and they attract a lot of people who offer them bananas, oranges, citrus and a lot of things. Sometimes, They carry me on the street in a procession and I was sitting on a cart decorated with flowers, doing like this, like a drunk person. I don't like being a Buddha like that. So you know, in the name of the Buddha, in my name, they have done a lot of things that are very harmful to the Dharma. You should know that being a Buddha is also very difficult. If you want to be a teacher and if you want people to practice the Dharma correctly, that is not an easy job. I don't think yet you would enjoy being the Buddha. The best thing is for each of us to stay in his or own position and try to improve the situation and enjoy what we are doing. Then the Buddha, in order to summarize all that he just said, read to Mara a verse, a gata. But the bar gata is a little bit too long, I don't remember. The essence of the gata is just what I have said in the former part of the story. Now, if you were there with Ananda, and if you were very mindful, you would have had the feeling that Buddha and Mara were a couple of friends who need each other, like day and night, like flowers and garbage. This is a very deep teaching of Buddhism, and I trust that the children will understand very deep. You may compare Buddha with the flowers, very fresh, very beautiful, and you may compare Mara with the garbage. It doesn't smell good. There are a lot of flies who like to come to the garbage. It's not pleasant to touch, to hold in your hand, to smell the garbage. Yet, all flowers become garbage. That is the meaning of impermanence. All flowers have to become garbage. If you practice Buddhist meditation, you find out about very interesting things, like about the garbage. Although garbage stinks, although garbage is not pleasant to hold in your hand, if you know how to take care of the garbage, You will transform it back into flowers. You know, gardeners don't throw away garbage. They preserve the garbage and take care of the garbage and in just a few months the garbage becomes compost. They can use that compost to grow lettuce, tomatoes and flowers. We have to say that organic gardeners are capable of seeing flowers in garbage, seeing cucumbers in garbage. That is what the Buddha described as the non-dualistic way of looking at things. If you see things like that, you will understand that the garbage is capable of becoming a flower, and the flower can become garbage. Thanks to the flowers, there is garbage, because if you keep flowers for three weeks, they become garbage, and thanks to the garbage, there will be flowers. You now have an idea of the relationship between Buddha and Mara. Mara is not very pleasant, but if you know how to help Mara to transform Mara, Mara will become Buddha. If you don't know how to take care of the Buddha, Buddha will become Mara. Flowers and garbage are of an organic nature because both flowers and garbage are living realities. Buddha and Mara are also organic and they need each other. It is thanks to the difficulties, thanks to the temptations, that the Buddha has overcome his suffering and his ignorance and become a fully enlightened being. I hope the story has given you as much understanding and delight as it has given me. But now it's time to go. Thanks so much for joining the program today, and I hope you'll do so again next week. Before we leave, please dedicate any positive potential we have accumulated today to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye.